So I, I think we've had a couple weeks in the class. And uh, the first week, if you were here, if you've been here the whole time, is we talked about kind of the ways that we go, the five styles of ways we manage conflict. Anybody remember that? Been here? Was anybody here the first week? Or we, we just run everybody out. Okay. I remember that five styles we had. Avoid. Help me out. What are, what are the ways that people tend to manage conflict? Anybody remember? Cooperate. Cooperate. To harmonize. So cooperate. Let's get everybody to the table. Right? We all want to talk. We all want to harmonize. is kind of let people have their way and get along. What's another? Compromise. Compromise. That's to cut a deal. Somebody else said no. Direct. Oh, you probably are one of them. Then you steer a director, right? No. So uh, you're sitting beside a director. Uh, but yeah, direct. You have to tell people what to do. And then, then one of my personal favorites, which I need to do more of, which is, anybody know? Avoid. And sometimes that's one of the styles. It's just not worth it, not worth engaging. Then we talked about last week, I think Matt, I was not here, uh, worked with you on know, kind of a theology of conflict. What, is the, what do we think the Bible says about conflict? I tell people that it's always kind of dangerous just to say, what do you think the Bible says about something? Because you can argue anything using the Bible, right? You can take enough verses and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And we talk about a theology of conflict. I tell people that's not some systemic theology. It is what you read in the Bible that shapes how you think and the experiences you've had in your life that makes you the way you are. And when you combine those two, you end up with kind of a personal theology of what conflict ought to be about. So we're going to get a little more specific and talk about a skill set today. Has anybody ever had anyone uh, take advantage of them? Come on, let's be honest. Try to be a good person to take advantage of you. We're going to talk about a skill set today that can keep people from taking advantage of it. In fact, for what it's designed to do, it works 100% of the time. I don't make those promises often. There's very few that I'll make that kind of promise. The skill set today, designed for what it's doing, what it's designed, is effective 100% of the time. It's also effective making people not like you, too. All right? But when we get there, the kind of people who are mistreating you, taking advantage, walking on you, probably aren't the people you need to spend a lot of time trying to make them like you either, right? So we're going to kind of work toward that and talk about something called Axelrod's theory and lay that against how we as Christians think about that. Anybody ever seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? Red Book? It's been out a while, right? So kind of help me with that. So. Uh, Russell Crowe, right, plays a, um, a guy, does anybody remember his name? John, John Nash. Nash. Right, the mathematician who won a, won a Nobel Prize for his work on competitive cooperation, mathematically game theory. But John Nash had a problem. Does anybody remember what it was? Did you see the movie? He suffered from yeah, paranoid schizophrenia, right? Interestingly enough, when I tell this story, I was coming to Vanderbilt one day to some medical school professors, and on break, one came up and said, hey, I was John Nash's psychiatrist in a part of this. And I'm like, really? Tell me something HIPAA law allows you to do. You know, I was like, <laughs> and he, all he said was, I went to the premiere of the movie with he and his son. And you may remember the movie. I mean, it's, if you haven't seen it, go rent it. It's a great movie. It's on Netflix, by the way. It's on Netflix, so you can do that. Just use, use your, your friend, log on, watch Netflix, right? And watch A Beautiful Mind. And it gets really crazy. I mean, if you remember, he's having all these visions and dreams about, you know, the the Nazis, uh, the, uh, the, the Russians, I think it was, where they was trying to, you know, steal his stuff. He said everything, except the fact 
that in the movie, they, the people in my head, they actually like physical characters for the movie, and I just heard voices in my head. Everything else was accurate. That's kind of what I dealt with, which is crazy, right? But Nash worked in this theory, which had some new theories come out, which other people worked on, and one of his colleagues, a guy named Robert Axelrod, and he came up with a theory, and he, he worked in an area of something called prisoner's dilemma. Anybody ever heard of that before? And he came up with some theories about how you deal with people. One of the things Axelrod did was negotiate with the Russians over nuclear armaments in the 60s. And y'all are really young compared to this, but somebody in has got to be old enough to say, oh, no, that's true. I may be the oldest person in this room. Except, well, you just look older than me. But, um, but, but he came up with a, 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 a nuclear negotiation theory called MAD. Anybody know what that means? Stood for Mutually Assured Destruction. And the concept behind this was what? If one person launches a missile, everyone else is launching a missile, and we all we all die, right? We all have enough nukes, which is really these massive nuclear, right? And the idea behind that, and it was met, that was Axelrod's leadership in that area came up. This idea that, hey, we'll get enough nukes, probably looking at Russia at the time, but and if Russia has the nukes and Khrushchev decides he wants to launch, which Khrushchev knows is going to happen? We're going to launch back. And it was met with complete derision coming back. There was even a, a movie made about it called War Games, if you remember that, with Matthew Broderick when he was like 12. And, uh, but the interesting part of that is it worked, you know, for a better part of over 50 years, it kind of worked. Now, now the world's changing, and this works. What do you have to have? Just kind of an aside. For MAD to work, what do you have to have as a precursor? Think about it. This actually has to do with class today. I'm not just rambling. Okay. What what has to work for mutually assured destruction to be helpful? You've got to be equal to your opponent or greater than. Okay. Yeah. There's got to be some self-interest and some equity, right? And now we're not so sure that's going to work because of self-interest side. There's people out there in groups out there that don't really care if they get nuked. Fair enough. All this is kind of the background of where we're coming today. But I will say that Axelrod came back and began his work actually as a political scientist and at least a couple years ago, was still teaching. You know how old he was. That's what half the professors they were teaching all the way. He's still at the University of Michigan teaching. But he said, okay, if what? If it worked against the country, could you have a similar approach to individuals who want to go nuclear on you all the time? Is there a way to manage people? Come on in, guys, if you want to. If you don't want to, it's embarrassing now. The entire party embarrassed. <laughs> uh, could you go? Could you manage people who couldn't behave in the same kind of way? And they end up with something called Axelrod's theory. Now, we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. I want to ask you a question. Think about what you know about Scripture, and this goes the life of Jesus. Can you think of a time that Jesus dealt with a bully? And if he did, what did he do? Or a group of boys or whatever. What did he, what was his approach when he dealt with people who didn't have his self-interest at heart? Seemed like half the time anyway, at least. Pharisees. Okay. And how did he respond at times? There's different ways he responded, right? Can you give me a, the Pharisees, for example, obviously didn't have his best interest at heart. That seemed to be the primary tension, right? What were some of his responses to people who didn't have his best interest at heart? I always feel like he typically outwitted them. Okay. What do you mean? Uh, he would uh, just 
answer their question with a riddle. Right. Or some they would, sort. So yeah, he would do parables. Yeah. One of the things he did, and parables were not, it's so interesting. We think of parables as the way to enlighten. Uh, if you look at the life of Jesus, many times he uses parables as a way to confuse or disorient. Uh, you know, we, as we see those cute little stories that give us a little moral meaning. Actually, they were very subversive kind of devices up ending kinds of stories that he would use to mess them around. So they would come in, you know, and he would they would he would say something, he'd talk about, well, you sow a seed, you do this, you're gonna just just tick them off. They want to push them off the cliffs and kill him. What else would he do? You may remember a temple. What happened to the temple scene? So he went in. What was going on? So he, go, he obviously went off in the temple, right? But what was happening in that temple? There were uh, persons selling sick animals for higher cost to those who were not wealthy enough to afford and bring their own animals. Right. So you had this thing going on. Or they almost had a multi-level pon they had a multi-level Ponzi scheme going on in the temple. Because basically, you know, people would bring. They're supposed to bring sacrifices to the temple. They would bring sacrifices, but guess what the sacrifices had to do? They had to pass the inspection of the temple. The, the, the temple priests, the people, the Levites, whoever's working in the temple. When they got there, what do you think they would tell them? That doesn't measure up. Oh, well, you need a set here, purchase one of ours. And they had, a, they had a scheme going, making money, and they would. Yours doesn't measure up, sell ours. You know, and they were basically taking advantage of people, bringing stuff in. Jesus walked in, looked at the whole thing, makes a whip, flips over tables, and starts you know, uh, attacking people, basically, both verbally and maybe physically. We don't know, right? It's a really tough scene. It doesn't really fit with our Jesus, you know, Jesus loves me story some. Any more? Any, you want to tell one more? basically said, I'm done with this, he just disappeared, right? So it's interesting kind of dynamic happening. Uh, I personally think all of those incidents where he outwitted, where he just moved through them and left them standing there, moments where he stood up to them, are all examples of what we're going to talk about this morning, which is how do you deal with somebody who's trying to take advantage of you? And it's tough. It's really difficult. Because we're taught, well, tell me about, going back to your idea, growing up as a Christian or growing up in your family, how were you taught to deal with people who were taking advantage of you or mistreating you? What were the basic understandings in your life, kind of from how you were reared, to deal with that? Well, we said it last week in Matthew 5, you know, it's pretty quick as a kid, you taught that scripture. Mm -hmm. Which would be? Turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek, right? And the problem is, there's, there's only two cheeks. Then, then what do you do, right? That's uh, as, as a problem. I mean, I remember coming home and having that discussion with my dad. I got beat up in the park across the street from us. I came home and I had kind of a rough, you know, oil field town I grew up in. And I'm like, he's like, son, you got to stand up. And I said, dad, I was taught to turn the other cheek. You've only got two cheeks. What are you going to do then? You know, I had this interesting dynamic, <laughs> right? What else? I mean, seriously, what else were we taught? Be a peacemaker one to give in or whatever it takes to make the conflict go away, you do it. And and so then some of us begin to take responsibility for other people's behavior. You ever seen that one before? 
where it's now that if people can't get along, somehow I'm supposed to fix it, which causes really undue stress when you can't. Um, I will say this, there's a certain part of the population that your, your desire to be nice to them all the time is like pouring blood into shark into the water for sharks. That actually, the things that many of us were taught to do, and many of us kind of see as our Christian walk, actually feeds their kind of narcissistic bad behavior. Is that making sense to you? Now, I want to say on the quick the front side before we go into this, you may have a completely pacifist view, and I am not denigrating that at all. You, you may say, you know, I am not going to be a person who engages somebody uh, strongly or violently or stand up no matter what they do to me or anybody else. And I want, to, I want to honor that. But also do me a favor, don't become a leader if you're going to have that view. Because it's really difficult to protect the sheep from the wolves if you let the wolves walk on you. So some of the stuff I'm saying can be kind of controversial. So I want you to think about it. Uh, so let's kind of circle back to Axelrod with this understanding that we We've been taught that we want to be peacemakers, that we want to be kind. I've heard the one, you know, keep heat coals on their heads, right? Uh, but you be so good and nice to them that people will just change. All of those things, which are wonderful scriptural views in the world for certain segments of the population, don't seem to do any good. And what do you do with that? So going back to Axelrod's work, uh, we're going to play a game. This is not a great game. The way I play this game may not fit perfectly for this class. We're going to hang in there. There will be a few centers in there. Uh, <laughs> let's say you were really excited about coming. Let's stretch your imagination. Huge. You're really excited about coming to class today. You were so excited that you and somebody else in this room went out, and y'all decided just got some fun last night. You know, break loose, not be too wild, but, you know, have some good Christian fun, right? You went to Lower Broadway, and you're having fun, and it got a little out of control, and you woke up this morning, instead of being in church, you're in a different feeling room, and it looked kind of like this one that had the, but it was gray, and you're all over, and there were bars there, and you're thinking, how did I get here? And then right on the other side of those bars was our district attorney. And, 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 while you were having fun last night, we knew the Supreme Court was moving right, and during the night last night, they did away with your right to counsel and your Miranda rights. So it's just you. You're just in, the, you're just in that jail with the district attorney standing there, and he looks at you and says, you really had a good time last night. You and your friend had a good time. You had such a good time that we could throw you both in jail for three years right now. And you're like, Think about what you did. You start thinking, oh, and you start remembering everything you did last night. And then he says, but we also know for sure you did something a lot worse, but we can't prove it. So I've got a deal from you because I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Just remember that. So here's the deal. If you will go ahead and confess to everything you guys did last night, I'll let you go home. But your friend who's in the cell next door goes to jail for So, if, uh, if that's the case, there's one problem. What's going on in the jail cell next door? Same offer. Right? You can sit tight or you can confess. And what Matt's doing up there, he's drawing you a grid so you don't have to think about this, right? So, if you both, and you have to make this decision right now, if you both sit tight, 
you both you both get three years. But if one of you confess, but if if Emily confesses, what's Emily do? And what happens to her friend? And vice versa. And if you both if you both confess, you both get twenty years. They got to make a decision right now. Now, I'm gonna be, any questions? Anything you want to ask me before you make this decision? I mean, you know, I, I want to be helpful. I want you to feel good about what you've got to decide. Any questions about it? Is the mob involved? <laughs> if I'm let free, uh, snitches end up in ditches. Is that what yeah. you're saying? <laughs> uh, no, not that I know of. Okay. I mean, it could be. Is it a friend I like or more of an acquaintance? You know, just <laughs> a good enough friend you commit a major crime with them. So I don't know kind of how you work in that room. <laughs> I'm just, I'm very agreeable. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that. Is everybody right? Yeah. What kind of prison are we talking about? We're maximum or are we talking about? We're, we're, we're talking the nasty Okay, we're talking life and, you know, you know you're going to have to align with some kind of, you know, gang. It's going to be a rough deal. Okay. Uh, any others? Is the prison owned by a private corporation? Yes. <laughs> it's owned by a private corporation and, uh, and you're probably to join a gang to survive. Okay. Yes. You actually commit the three years. Yes, you did. They did commit the crime, and you do remember what they are. <clears throat> All right. Was the crime killing season? your friend? What's that? Was the crime killing your friend? No, your friend's there. Oh. Your friend's there. Bail themselves in the door. Any questions? Everybody decided? So I'm going to pick on you. We're going to play this game. I'm going to go. Tell me what's your name? Brian. Brian, you went with. What's your name? Leslie. You and Leslie went out and committed this crime last night. Ryan, what would you do? You sit tight or you confess? I sit tight. What would you do? You can't change. Whatever you're going to do. Sit tight. And you both get? Three years. Three years. Feel good about that? <laughs> <laughs> There's a man who's seen a prison. What's your name? Heather. Heather, you went with Laura. Okay? So you would go home and you would spend the rest of life in prison. We'll do one or two more. So this will not just as uh, someone today. I will tell the truth. Okay. Then you're <laughs> <laughs> What's your name? Sarah. Sarah. Now you can't pick anybody who's already confessed. There's anybody else in the room who would you pick? Oh. <laughs> who's this? All right. Now you, there's listen. There's only two reasons she picked you. One is you look trustworthy. The other is you look like. Should you go life in prison? Or would you confess only get 20 oh, years? Oh, no, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, sorry. Yeah. You, you, this, yeah. Yeah. you need an attorney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 which, which was going to be the. Yeah, which gonna, now here's the thing. This is part of the game that, that Axelrod worked in. 
they played this game over and over and over. And I, I, uh, there's if there are statistics people in this room, you know, you uh, you can argue with me, but I will say this from my understanding: there's kind of a mathematically better answer than the others, right? If you if you confess, what's the least amount of time you're going to spend in jail? Zero. And the most you spend is 20 years, right? If you sit tight, what's the least amount of time? And what's the most? Now, so that you kind of look at that and first answer, me, God, he's fast, right? It's interesting. This has been played tens of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of people over a 40, 50 year period. I'll say this is simplification purposes. The vast majority, perhaps 70% of people, tend to do what? Sit tight. And about the rest, that 30% or so, tend to confess. That's interesting. Let's kind of hear. How many of you would sit tight? Let's see here. And how many of you find them confess? Absolutely. And how many of you are like, this is a stupid game? <laughs> Here's what I want you to see of this. Interestingly enough, why would, when it's smarter to confess, why are you guys sitting tight? What do you mean? Shoving somebody else under the bus. Okay, anybody else? What would, why would that be the primary? Any other reasons? Well, I figure if I commit a crime with my friend, then I can trust that and also not screw me over. Okay, that's that's <laughs> uh, honor among thieves. I get that, you know. Here's what's interesting. There's lots of reasons, and if you can read this vast result of material on this study, but here's what it comes down to for our purposes. People struggle with mixed motives about doing right and wrong. Very few purely motivated people in this room. Everybody's got, most everybody has two voices there. One of those is, how do I take care of myself? And the other is, how do I also be true to other people? See what I'm saying? And for most of us, in decisions we make, we kind of have to struggle with that. What's good for me, what's good for others. Again, and we have all, and as Christians, we have all this kind of instruction right up here in our head, too, which not everybody else has. Fair enough? Yeah. So we got this set of rules we're playing off of. Not everybody's playing off the same set of rules. And over here, we heard, like, don't in your anger, don't sin. You know, you need to, don't let the sun go down on my anger. You need to treat others better than yourselves. About 70% of the population, at some level, for some reasons, kind of buying into the most of the time I want to do not only what's good for me, but do what's good for other people. And a majority of the population will even kind of give up some stuff to take care of other people. That's just kind of the norm. Yeah. All right? And, and we'll talk about those in a few weeks when you disagree with those people. But somewhere, I don't know, we'll just numbers, 25 to 30% of people, they, own, they primarily take care of themselves when stress is put on. Is that making sense? And they will shove you under the bus if it means protecting themselves. And I'm not judging them. I'm just saying that stuff happens. And it's really tough when we work out, see, as Christians, we work out of a, a, a construct that says we're a body, right? And we're working out of a construct that says we're going to care about other people and give to them and take care of them. And in the world we're living now, less and less people work out of that construct. They've got two choices, and both of them are legitimate. One of them is, I don't care what they do to me. I'm going to do this. I don't care what else happens. 
this is my construct, and I will just go along with that. And that is awesome. But I will also tell you, as a Christian construct, it's not completely limited to that. You can see that in the life of Jesus. When he turned over tables. When he basically said, you know, you can kill me, but it's not going to go your way if you do. And when he, you know, on and on, when he challenged people and stood up to people, which is not what we normally quote from Scripture. Didn't see anybody saying, go turn over the tables and make a whip as our theology of how to deal with conflict. But I'm telling you, with a certain percent of the population who wants to take advantage of you, when we only see one side of this theology, we're setting ourselves up to be mistreated. Now, you can disagree with that, and I admire, that's great, because this, this is just how I see it. So, Axelrod says that for a certain percentage, perhaps 30% of the people, I will say this, of that 30%, there's been other studies that say about, you know, I don't know, a small percentage of that have personality disorders. And you know how you treat a personality disorder? You're right. Okay? That's exactly <laughs> right. Right? Uh, they, they don't have a conscience, don't have any construct around them that allows them to understand the world mattering in any way except theirs. And that's really difficult, right? And, you know, I just wouldn't even get a psychiatrist to teach that. It's not my arena. But I will say this. Turning the other cheek. So, I go back to my middle school days. There's a, a big old kid named Robert Barron, which is in, in Kermit, Yep, Kermit, Texas Middle School, and what was it? Purple Sage Middle School in Kermit, Texas. <laughs> I'm telling you, I was in my middle school. Okay? And Robert's, we had half lockers, yeah. and his half was under mine. <coughs> Robert was twice my size and three times as mean. His dad was a town drunk. You know what I'm talking about? He had a terrible family. He's mean. And he would pick on me and hit me and beat me up. And I would go to my, my parents, and I'm like, I don't want to go to school. I'm going to be, you know, and they're my, and you're packing me, you know. And my mother was like, just be nice to Robert. He'll be, you know, my mom's doing this. <laughs> Love him, and Robert will change. You know, be Jesus to him. All that. I am getting the daylights beat out of me. Day, and it, we didn't have school not like now. Robert didn't get suspended. You know, it's just a different world back then, right? Now you look at somebody wrong, you're in the school suspension. That wasn't it back then. And finally, one day after baseball practice, he chased me home with a baseball bat. And my dad, who's kind of quiet, finally says, son, you're going to have to stand up to Robert. And I'm like, he will beat, he's twice my size. Then pack a lunch and make sure that he doesn't ever want to get in a fight with you again. Now see, that's, that scared me to death. And it also ran counter to what I'm taught in Bible class. And so I remember going to school and saying, shaking like a leaf. <laughs> shaking like a, because I, and sure enough, I'm standing in my locker. He comes by and he hits me in the back of the head and knocks my head into the locker. He bends over to get his stuff and I grab my metal, I realized my locker was metal. When he bent over, I grabbed it and went, <laughs> hit him in the head. I knocked out Robert. <laughs> Cold cocked Robert in the floor. I had this swelling of victory until I realized, what? I didn't kill him. <laughs> and so I barreled, you know, the principal's office, right? The interesting thing is, it did not escalate. I'm not saying it works as a model every time, but it did not escalate. He actually began to back off a little bit when I finally stood up to him. I'm not saying that's a model for your children, but it's also a model somewhat 
what Axelrod's about to say. <clears throat> Axelrod says this, that basically with some people constantly affirming them and trying to be rational with them and logical with them and unbelievably loving toward them does nothing but escalate their bad behavior. And I don't think, in fact, you can go to my academic page and I'll print the article. I wrote a, a paper presented at a conference on can you be a Christian and can you stand up to bullies, basically. And I think the answer is yes. Axelrod basically says that there's a way to do this. Now remember, this is not for your spouse unless they're a bully and you don't care if they like you, right? <laughs> this is not for people that, that basically good people who just disagree with you. Because if you use this on good people, you're the bully, okay? But I honestly believe, and you can talk about it with me further, but I honestly believe it is completely Christian to use this approach. When you're dealing with someone who has bullied you, mistreated you, lied to you, or the worst one of the bunch, be passive-aggressive with you. You seen those people? Yeah, that's the worst kind of bullying. Because then, when you stand up to them, they act how? Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm hurt. Oh, please! You sit there and jerk me around and act hurt when I stand up to you, right? Uh, or you, you, you have responsibilities at work. They have responsibilities. They don't do their part, and they have 110 reasons they don't do their part, and they want you to cover for them. That's the worst kind of bullying. And no amount, and for some of those people, no amount of loving them and telling them Jesus loves them and you know all that stuff is going to change them. So then you've got to decide: is it my job to change them? Or is it my job to set some boundaries around how they're allowed to treat me? Does that make any sense? So this is what Axel Ross says you should do. When you engage, let's say it's with Matt. So Matt bullies me. This is the truth. Matt bullies me all the time at work. It's a horrible situation. Uh, he's one of my employees, and he still bullies me. I think it's you know just a gift. But um, Matt, if, if Matt and I have worked together in the past, and Matt, I've had a history of problems with Matt, and I, and I get assigned to do something with Matt again. No matter how bad my history with Matt has been before, I should always start the engagement as if it's going to work out great. That's what I says. No matter what's happened in the past, this new engagement is a new opportunity. So you always start nice. No matter what. I don't care how many times they mistreated you. I don't care how many times they bullied you. start as if, why would you? I mean, so, I don't even know if you knew this, Linda, but I tried boxing. And did I tell you that I tried to box in high school? And she's like, no. I said, yeah, it was a terrible experience. <laughs> Part of why I may look this way. But when, when I was in boxing, they never said, leave with your chin. They never said, go in the, go in the arena. And after they deck you one, be nice at first, be reasonable with them. After they deck you, then defend yourself. So the first time I saw this, I thought, this is a terrible idea. I mean, if I'm dealing with Matt or I'm dealing with Dave, and they, he bullies me too. I mean, it's a terrible thing. But these two guys, and no matter what has happened in the past, why would I start nice with them if I know for sure they're going to bully me? What, what's, the, what's the purpose of that? Wait, you know why? Um, I mean, God forgives us, Jesus forgives us, you know, all of our mess ups, why wouldn't we forgive somebody else? 
So one of that is, is I, I believe this, and this is what separates from the rest of the world. Part of that is our biblical understanding construct says everybody deserves a second chance. Doesn't matter what they've done in the past, everybody deserves to be different, right? There's some more pragmatic reasons too. Beyond that, which should be enough, there's other reasons more practical. What might they be? A combative person very easily blows up. Right. So if you start out with strength, what are you gonna they get? are going to meet you with right away. So if you start negative, we guarantee you. You're guaranteed to get negative, right? And the third reason would be, you're, and this kind of goes back to the first reason, you're modeling for them what their relationship with you could look like. You know, this could be all, so I, you know, I go up to Matt and I'm like, hey Matt, went by and got your, got your pipe coffee with some ice in it, a little bit watered down, and some room to top the cream. Is that right? That's right. I get it and get it right. <laughs> Take it to his office and he puts ice in it so he drink it immediately. I've noticed this about it. What do you call that drink? The Captain Boring. The Captain Boring, that's it. So, <laughs> so I go get the Captain Boring, and I take it to Matt. And I say, Matt, I am so excited about this. I mean, I, I know we've, and one thing is that you acknowledge past problems. So I know in the past we hadn't worked together. I know it hadn't worked out perfect, but this is a new opportunity. Let's sit down and figure this out. Now, he says, you even go, one thing I did, he says, you even offer them a small gift. Captain Boring from Gisbert. You go to them and give them something and say, I am looking forward to all these things which we believe to be true in good situations. And allow them to respond. And one of a thousand chances with Matt is he responds this way. But what happens when Matt comes back at me? And he uses all of his lawyerly skills and he's looking at me and he's like, you know, I really can't stand it. The last time I worked with you, it was a disaster. I, you're not very good at your job. You know, whatever Matt says to me. Have you been reading my journal? Yes, I've been. I've been, I've been basically, I'm asking the assistants what you say when I'm not there. So, uh, and so this, this happens. How do you respond? Axelrod says in that moment, you respond, now listen to me, in kind, not kindly. And also, not in tone, but in substance. You stand with me? And he's very specific about what you do. So if Matt comes back at me and says, I work with you, you're a disaster, you're this, you're that, you know, immediately what I'm supposed to do is this. Well, Matt, with no emotion, no anger, Matt, what I heard you say is, and I repeat back to Matt what he just said to me. So what I heard you say is you don't want to work with me. I'm not good at what I do. I'm holding you back. I'm a problem for this area, and somebody else should be there. And then I go, that's kind of what I heard you say. Why would you do that? And you can't do it with, I can't do it that way. You're like, Man, what With this very, why would I do that? What's the point of handing back to him what he just said to me? Okay, what do you mean by that? Um, well, I, the narcissist in my life denies, um, you know, whatever that hurtful thing, um, you know, this complete denial, like, later on. So, I don't know, like... All right, so first of all, you're, you're talk about for an example, narcissists. You only exist when they need you. I only know that about narcissists, but your whole world doesn't matter as long as... Is that fair enough? As long as you're in that circle, right? And so when you come back, they feel completely justified and just kind of blah, right? And when you hand back to them and say, you said this, this, and this, 
I, I use this a lot in kind of our work. What do you think people say the vast majority of the time back to me when I hand it back to them? I didn't, I didn't say that. Yeah. You want to go, yeah, here, here's the tape. Listen to it, you know, right? But when you go, I didn't say that, what do you say then? Yeah, and in fact, I would go so much further as to blame it on yourself. You know what I'm saying? You'd go, oh, I'm sorry, I must have misheard you. I, I can always say I'm from Texas, we're not that bright. People in Tennessee go, that's all right. You know, that's how they go home. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry, I must have misunderstood. Tell me what you want to say. He gets to say it again. And, and most, sometimes that escalates people. But the vast majority of time, interesting enough, they tend to do what? They tend to back off a little. Well, what I said is yours is really difficult to work with. I just don't like working with you. And then what do you say at that point? say so what I heard you say <laughs> is this this and this and you keep doing that until they go yeah that's kind of what I said now why in the world besides the fun of irritating the daylights out of them what are you gaining from this clarification moment this back and forth you're figuring out what the real issue is what do you mean well because when you both agree on what what the problem is, then then you're in a position to actually deal with that problem. Because the vast majority of time, hot air at you. Yeah, you, you can't fight hot air. Sure. And so then, when people like that, many times, did you notice you're having parallel conversations? You're trying to talk about this, and they're doing some kind of subversive junk around it. And and, and here you're kind of saying, well, let's agree on what we're talking about. So you have this two things that happen. One is. They get to hear themselves and hear how ridiculous they sound, and the really bright ones kind of pick it up. Some don't. And then you also establish some ground rules about how you talk. Once you get there, he says, then you set boundaries. And that sounds like this. Well, Matt, what I heard you say was, you do not like working with me. I tend to be lazy. I don't get my stuff done. You end up doing the most of the work, and I don't get it done. And Matt says, that's exactly what I'm saying. Then I say to Matt, okay, and if I can appreciate that, and if I were you, I might feel the same way. That's a legitimate statement because you're not them. You're not a narcissist, so you don't know how they feel. That, you see what I'm saying? But you're, so if I were you, I might feel the same way. In light of that, then you set your stake in the ground. Here's what we're going to do. If you don't want to work with me, the provost said we had to work together. We've got this problem. So what are you going to I'm just going to do the project myself. Turn in and tell me you just refuse to work with me. Now, how do you think that's going to go over? What's going to happen when you do that? Oh, come on. What do you think will happen? It could blow up, right? Oh, you can't. That's stupid. That, you know, and then when they say that's stupid, all that, what do you do? <laughs> so here's what I heard. I tell you guys, make this a game. This really works. Here's what I heard you say, right? And and you keep doing, and then they'll say, well, then you say, okay, I understand that. Why are you? And here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. And you set that stake in the ground about what you're going to do. Now, if at any point they the least bit start to give in kind of acknowledge maybe you're right. I mean a little bit like, well, Steve, maybe you're not as stupid as I thought. Or, well, maybe we could talk about this some more. The minute they do that, you forgive everything they've said about you, everything they've written, and you go right back to being nice. Does that make sense? So, well, maybe we work together. I knew we'd work together. Hey, you drank that coffee. Let's get some more. I'll buy you one. This is going to be awesome. 
Well, I don't say it. I want to work with you. Oh, what I heard you say is back and forth. This we're going to do. You go back and forth on them. What's the purpose of doing this? What are you? You're obviously not trying to get them to like you. This is not winning friends and influencing people. You're not even really trying to be productive at this point. What are you doing to this boy? And what does that do? I mean, I think it actually helps the other party um, really kind of be invested in establishing what the hospital is. You're, you're, you're teaching them what's the right way to talk to Because there's only two responses to you. They won't, even Matt won't do this forever. As much as, my, as, much as Matt likes to argue, he won't do this forever. I mean, physically, I don't know if anybody, Anybody here work in the medical field? So you'll know this. You can't argue for it. Your head would blow off, literally, right? At some point, you're physically just head would explode. I'm sure that's true. <laughs> uh, there's only really two options. One of those is for them to just walk away. I, mean, I don't work with you. That's unreasonable. I don't deal with you. Guess what? In your world, what is that? That's a victory because they take advantage of you. Or they give in and you get something done. But what you're doing is you're teaching them. There's a productive way to talk to me, and there's a not productive way to talk to me. There's a productive way to engage me and a non-productive. And you get non-productive. Look, bullies only want two things out of you. One is to either bully you or get a rise out of you. That's the only two things they're really shooting for. For you to, to fight back or for you to just let them walk on you. And when, when you're not doing either one. You're not being rude. You're not being difficult. You're being kind. You just not let them walk on you. Is that making sense? Now, a couple suggestions. One is you have to be you short declarative sentences. Don't talk to them. I don't have to tell you this, but those kind of people, when you talk a lot, you look weak. Lots of words look weak in these situations. And I know as Christians, we always want to explain ourselves, don't we? I'm being mean to you, but Jesus would want me to. Now let me tell you why. And, you know, that's just, no, you just kind of say, you said this, I believe this. You said this, I believe that, right? And let them deal with it. And in that moment, you have this deal where eventually they will learn how to deal with you or eventually they will leave you alone. And that's all you're looking for in this environment. Now, we just got about two minutes left. Kind of this is pretty counterintuitive for a lot of us. How many of you think you can do this? I'm not asking you to do it, just think you could. How many think I can do this? How many of you are like, God, yeah, I don't think so. It's, it is intuitive, and it makes complete sense to me that maybe my personality is the problem that I see. That person's going to get a rise out of me. Yeah, and so which of these is hardest for you? Start nice, respond in kind, or forgive? Which of those three is hardest for you? It's probably the middle. Okay, the, the responding kind, yeah. to keep it calm and not escalate with Because that's my big, so if you ask me, I mean, I, I tell my wife recently, if I get diff, when I get a difficult conversation, my biggest concern is me not getting snarky. Is that making sense? Because I can get snarky like and, that. And if you're able to do this, I also, my response to all this is, I don't think, I don't think I agree with you when you say then you're just going to run people off. Because mm -hmm. I think if you can do this, this is really what you're after if the other person is a directive and I'm not. And here's what I think happens the vast majority of the time, people figure out how to deal with you and they adjust their behavior. I think there are some personalities who are just so, they're, they're narcissists or other things, they won't, they'll just leave you alone. The vast majority of people, 
I believe in my heart we teach people how to treat us. People learn how to treat us by how we respond to them. Is that making sense? Quite, listen, chat, I mean, yeah, Matt. Well, I, we're running out of time. I just want everyone to see that under this model, I get two cups of coffee for being mean. That's it. <laughs> uh, two cups. One at the beginning and one at the end. And, and it, what works out of that is eventually no amount of coffee makes it worth it to Matt. <laughs> right? Here's what I want to send Lee Camp and I, Lee and I are very good friends, and Lee has a distinctly different view of the world than I do. Lee's a strong, strong. Lee and I were talking about, he, he said, you know, there's parts of this within my theology make it difficult to do this. And I want to acknowledge that too. All right? That's great. I will also tell Lee, please don't, like, be in charge of keeping me safe from the bad guys. <laughs> right? But for all of that, that does not necessarily manage other people well. So this is just a thought, and we'll pick up the rest later. It's an idea to think about. You may disagree with this. That's awesome. You can talk to me later about it. You can email me at steve.joiner.atlipscom.edu. I don't think everybody wants, likes doing this. I think everybody's capable of doing this. I honestly believe conflict management is a rational decision, not a gut one. So when you say to me, oh, I can't do this, what you're saying is I'm uncomfortable doing this. Because when I started doing this, I was extremely uncomfortable. And I realized over time, first of all, it did fit my, fit my theology. And second, it made my life remarkably easier. Now, we don't have time to work this anymore, but here's the thing. It's tougher to do up to a boss than it is down. Uh, and yet sometimes that's all you can do. You have to decide, you know, because this can be a meeting experience. You can do it with the wrong person if you want to meet. Uh, you can be looking for a job if you do this wrong. And I also say be very careful and judicious. Don't make this your first approach to people. Because most people aren't like this, right? But it's one tool you put in your tool chest, and I do think it's an opportunity. Any comments? Hey, hope's a little helpful. Next week you get a good feature, so we'll see you later.